Our Favorite Albums is brought to you by Complete Data Systems. Get powerful retail software built for independently owned retail stores. To see the software and how it can improve your retail business, go to retailprodemo.com. I think we take nostalgia for granted these days. At one time, pioneer music makers created a brand new style that would spark a revolution in the music industry and really in all popular culture overall. That style would be copied and improved on, and then it would be ubiquitous. It would be everywhere. By typical lifespan burnout, though, whatever that style would, would eventually just completely burn out and be replaced by the next fad or the next style. Trust me, no one ever went broke underestimating the taste of the American people. By the time the 90s rolled around, our society burned through four decades of constant shifts in popular styles and music. And by that point, the idea of nostalgic parody became in and of itself a style of its own. Think B-52s as a perfect example of this concept. Although Weird Al Yankovic created his very own style through masterful parody all by himself. In 1990, a group out of Atlanta called the Black Crows hit the scenes with a truly iconic album, Shake Your Money Maker. This was a callback to classic blues mixed with soul inspiration from the 70s rock gods like Faces or the Rolling Stones. The entire album's track list really reads like a greatest hits album, highlighted by this revamped, rocking version of Otis Redding's Hard to Handle. They even mixed in their own reworking of the 80s ballads with She Talks to Angels, and suddenly, these guys were giants on rock radio. Two years later, they followed up with their sophomore album, The Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, which was just as popular but had double the musicality and skill. It was the very first album in history to feature four separate number one hits on the rock charts. Everything these guys touched turned to gold. Suddenly, they were rock cornerstones for their generation, playing their version of inspired rhythm and blues southern rock that was all but dead up to that point. Led by brothers Chris and Rich Robinson, the group then set out to create their masterpiece album. However, as brothers are sometimes apt to do, Chris and Rich began fighting for creative control, both in the studio and in physical altercations. That dynamic of strife, coupled with personal crisis, created a toxic environment. The final product was a commercial failure, but one of the most brilliant albums of our generation. On this episode of Our Favorite Albums, we are listening to the controversial 1994 album, Amorica, by the Black Crows. Our Favorite Albums is a commentary, criticism, and music review podcast. All tunes are copyrighted and owned by the artist, not us. We just have to tell... <laughs> Motherfucker. We are just here to tell our opinions, which obviously are our own, and don't reflect any artist, a sponsor, or whatever. This is Our Favorite Albums. This is Our Favorite Albums, a podcast dedicated to the music that we love the most, presented to you in full album format. For comments, questions, or suggestions, visit us at OurFavoriteAlbums.com. I am Michael, and with me, as always, is my brother from another mother, Jason. What's going on, man? 
Well, we're here to talk about a good one today. Man, we are. Could we have, uh, this, is, this is funny, I was thinking about this. Could we have picked a really a more different album than the last one we did? No. Yeah, these are two, and not just the time period things, but subject matter, musicality, the style, everything. I mean, just completely separate, everything. really different albums. Yeah, so, which yeah. is a lot of fun, actually. Well, and even the composition of how they're of how they're made. Oh, absolutely. Like the, the songwriting style and where these guys took their um, uh, took their inspiration from. N- yeah. Nothing at all alike. And we've had a pretty varied amount of out, you know, different styles, you know, in our short little run here, but. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that these are the two most dramatically different probably back, so. back that we could yeah. come up with. Probably so. And what's really fun about these two albums is they were made within seven years of each other. Right. I, I find that pretty fascinating. Such a but you, the music scene. You know, the last album we did was in the eighties, mm-hmm. late eighties, and the music scene by the time you get around to you know the early nineties, as we've touched on before, had, had dramatically changed. Yeah, right? it had. Just a completely different world. Sure. And uh, these guys, as you alluded to in the intro, you know they've been around for a while. This is their third album, but they were—they're very much a product of this changed musical scene. Yeah, it you really know, was. You, you weren't getting people on MTV and at the in the '80s that were dressed like Chris Robinson was in any of the videos for this album. Yeah, <laughs> that's, exactly. that certainly yeah, that certainly wasn't happening. I don't think. So. Well, it, it is a fun history of this band because uh, when when they were coming out, uh, like big on the scene. It was almost as if I was switching the dial. Like you think of somebody like in the old days when we had to turn the dial. You know, yeah, and yeah. you go up and down the dial, and somehow you get to the older and look on, but he's in these. And then we get a whole bunch of country down here in Texas. But suddenly, I would turn on the the, the radio, and who was there? Was the Black it was Crows. the Black Crows? Yeah, yeah I remember uh, when Shake Your Money Maker came out, mm-hmm. and uh, nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety, yeah. and we'll we'll dwell on that here in a second, but. Or, or now it doesn't matter. There's no real format here that we have to <laughs> abide by. We don't have a producer. We own this. We, we own whatever, whatever we want to. We want to. Um, walking into a sound warehouse. Um, did you guys? You guys had sound warehouse in DFW, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, you know, it, th- that was the thing when we went to the mall. You know, mom's got to take my sister shopping, and my dad wants to do what he wants to do. And I'm like, I'll be in the sound warehouse. You guys just come <laughs> grab me on the way to dinner or something, right. right? And walking in, and there was a poster of the Black Crows up on the wall as you know i said posters of whatever was hot and it was shake your money maker right. and i had heard i believe it was hard to handle on the radio mm-hmm. uh, which i think was their first signal it was and, and getting the cd and taking it home and it hadn't been out long and playing through it and first of all my dad liked it because it sounded like all the stuff that he used to listen to yeah. right you yeah. know and the stuff that i grew up on all the albums that were on there but then when they get to hard to handle my dad played Otis Redding all the time, so I was familiar with the song. Yeah. I was certainly not expecting to find it on a CD that I'd picked, just picked up at Sound Warehouse in 1990. You know, just, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, it was, and it was great. But and, and then you know that came out on the radio, and like you alluded to, I mean, it really brought a lot of people into um, that kind of soul, like retro sound yeah. that wasn't any, there wasn't anything like it on the radio at all. It really wasn't. You know, it, it, as I alluded to in the intro, like if you think about. Like 50s pop stuff, when, when recorded music finally got to the point where people were making music off of music, right. uh, making money, making off, money of music, off of it, yeah. right, right. Um, it, it, it's funny how, like, you can see that whole, I don't know, it's like a dynamic that happened within the record industry. And, of course, we, you can always, like, if you, if you go back and look at any old 
uh, documentary, it always goes back to that Capitol Records building, that round building in LA. Exactly. It was such an icon, right? Yeah, yeah. Like multi story, round, perfectly round building. I uh, just said Capitol Records on it. And how many people rolled in and out and, and out, in and, and, and out? out. Yeah. yeah. And how many people that hit big and then the record station or the radio stations would call up the record company and say, we need more. So, need more, right. Yeah, get these guys back in the studio and like, record more. Give us another one, quick. It can only be three minutes and 30 seconds. You know, The could, chorus starts exactly 72 <laughs> seconds into the song. <laughs> We're going to go A. B, A, C. I mean, it's exactly, exactly this, Formula. this one style. Yeah. Uh, but if you go back and listen to that, uh, where the everything would, would shift, right? And you would have like this style and it's like doo-wop, right? And then right. you'd have like the, the Motown stuff was very specifically Motown. Uh, and then you'd have like the, the blues stuff and you'd have the jazz stuff and then the sure. jazz inspired stuff. And then you had the hippie era. And from that came... Uh, who is like the seminal of all hippie bands is the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead, right. Uh, But before them, you had Bob Dylan. And Chris Robinson will tell you that his two greatest influences were Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead uh, and Bob Dylan. Like he straight up tells you like this is is it. Uh, But did you know that his dad had a hit in the 50s? You know, I think I remember that their dad was a musician. Yeah, yeah. And his dad was a tyrannical asshole. (laughs) Like such a jackass uh, that drove these two brothers. Chris, Chris how, how many how many great rock and roll stories, especially with brothers involved, come out of uh, like the terrain, like the Kings of Leon, who were very popular yeah. over the like they they were famous. They had to like tour around with their dad, who just like kept his thumb down on them yep. the whole time. You know, That's so, right. there's definitely something to that. Well, and, and and we'll get to this in just a bit, but it, but it is kind of interesting uh, if you think like the family dynamics Absolutely. Uh, from that like, father who may have had just a little bit of success and then drove his his kids. Uh, Beach Boys is a good example. Yeah, sure. Because the dad was there. The Cowsills were another good example. And then from the Cowsills, uh, there was even the Partridge family, which was a fake story about kind of that same family dynamic. Right, that, right? that was engineered to uh, look like it was an actual family <laughs> narrative, right? Well, here on our favorite albums, we take turns picking an album. Uh, this time it's Jason's album. This was his choice. Uh, and what's funny is when you chose this album, uh, it was a, a pretty stark change from what we had before, which, you know, it's kind it's of, kind of what we want to do, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we There's some that. thought put into that. But as soon as you sent this over and said, this is it, like my first reaction was badass because this album was the one that is, like if I go back to the 90s, um, like post-grunge, like I think about how this whole album came out and how it hit so big, and then I started thinking, well, what was the best song on that album? And you probably couldn't think of one. I couldn't think of one, right? And yeah. so this is by far my favorite Black Crows album, and one of my favorite albums in, in general and in totality. But th- this is, the, I think, the culmination of their spending all the time on the road and spending all the time in the studio and developing their own sound. This sounds less like anything from before any of the throwback like the first album is very much obviously a throwback to the, the styles and the bands yeah. that we talked about yeah. and, and the second album gets a little has quite a bit of that and you can see them kind of getting to find their sound a little bit you know mark ford had come on as the lead guitar player and replaced jeff cease who was whatever mark ford's fantastic one of my favorite guitar players of all time but, but jeff was only on shake your money maker that's that's correct yeah and, and, and he ford was just he just played some you know some blues leads whatever yeah. you bow, know. Bow, 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 bow. very hooky, very, very riffy exactly right. whereas you get mark ford and this guy and we'll talk about this when we start going through the album because I, just his guitar playing is fantastic yeah but, you know then there's all this time in there and by the time they get to amorica you've got this band that's that's put some time in they've been writing songs for a while and they just produce this this masterwork yeah 
um, which which kind of goes away. Which we'll talk about that in a second too. Yeah. Um, r- real quick before we get into this, so this is 1994, mm-hmm. and as I like to do, what else came out in 1994? Okay, right? just for fun, and obviously a, just a metric ton of albums were released that year. I'm oh, not going to yeah. dwell on all of them, but a few that I thought were interesting from things that you and I are into. Okay, um, King's X released Dogman okay. that year, which yeah. is fantastic. Jarflies, Allison Chains. Jarflies was the one on my mind. There you go. Yeah. Uh, the Mavericks released What a Crying Shame. Just a fantastic album. I mean, it, outside of a genre we know, you and I normally talk about, but what a great album. It, it's such a beautiful voice. Uh, yes, and the guitar player, fantastic. You've got a very unique sound. I mean, they just they produce some really good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Beck, Mellow Gold. Okay. Which, what a hit. That, uh, Nine Inch Nails, the Downward Spiral. That was Downward Spiral, that's right. Super Unknown, Soundgarden. My goodness, what a huge album. Jeff Buckley, Grace. Oh, my goodness. R.E.M. released Monster. Okay. And Huge. Pearl Jam released Vitology. Okay. So th- this is coming. I mean, these are good albums, right? But was Green Day's Dookie in 94? Green Day's Dookie was in 94 as well. Yeah. And I also found out when I was looking up the albums, I had forgotten about this, but uh, Anal Cunt released their incredible album, Everyone Should Be Killed, that year as well. I had Anal Cunt on the right? <laughs> I, I, I didn't, have any I didn't anal- even know this. I didn't even know this band existed. Wow. They're just on the list, right? And I was like, who has the audacity to name their band Anal Cunt? I mean, what- Probably the guitar player of Anal Cunt was like, I got to make sure this is on Wikipedia. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, only way anybody's ever going to... You it, sons of bitches aren't forgetting me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to find Anal Cunt uh, members on Twitter and go back and, and tag just go them. tag them. Like, hey, guys. Yeah. Y'all are still famous. <laughs> For the first time ever. Oh man! But but you know, anyway, so this this came about um, in in a in a just, a, just a ocean of fantastic albums yeah. that year. I mean, at, at the, so at much the end good of the, stuff at the end of the grunge era. Sure, right? and, and we've got stuff in there that's grunge, but then there's all sorts of other stuff going on in there as well. But you're right; we're coming out of that early '90s grunge period. Right. I mean, Alice in Chains is is basically done at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, Jarflies is the last time they ever went into the studio. Um, Pearl Jam's Vitology. I know a lot of hardcore Pearl Jam heads would get mad at me here, but I would say Vitology was the last decent album they recorded, really. I mean, they kind of, that was the, their pinnacle as well. So, you know, you've got a lot of the old guard of the early 90s stuff kind of releasing their, their farewell to Kings, if you will. Sure. And, and that burnout that I talked about in the intro, uh, where, where you have a style that gets big and it influences everything, it influences how we wear our hair. It influenced the jargon, combat boots, flannel shirts, the whole nine yards, right? And when it, and you know, and you, and you think you graduated high school in ninety four, yeah, ninety four yeah. was a great year. I graduated high school in ninety five, and so I mean, this is just like as as much of a signature of our lives as any year, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And then right there in ninety four, everything burnt out. Our, <laughs> like everything in the grunge just burnt out. Uh, now, I as one of the top one percent. Listeners worldwide of Radiohead, <laughs> I, I would like to say that uh, the Benz and OK Computer had everything to do with that. You have said uh, one of the most insightful things regarding 90s music, which I consider to be one of the greatest – well, I consider it to be the greatest decade in music. I, I agree. Um, the first half of the 90s was grunge. And the second half was Radiohead. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, and, and so we're getting to the point here where all of this stuff is like this is a tipping over period. Right. You know, with all of these great bands and these great albums, you know, there is going to be a lot of these guys stuck around and kept doing stuff, but you never got another Super Unknown. You never got another Vitology, and you never got another Amorica. I mean, that's for, right. For these bands, this was kind of a pinnacle year for whatever reason. And '94 was a great year, just in general, though, wasn't it? I mean, it maybe the I'm looking. Economy was good. I mean, everything was kind of rosy. I mean, say what you will about politics, but the president was a pretty reasonable dude. You know, I mean, whatever. 
I mean, so I, I was. What, what was going bad in '94? <laughs> I graduated from high school that year. I'm sure I looked uh, through rosy glasses. I have an 18 year old. He graduated this year, so I was thinking, you know, being a little nostalgic, thinking about this. Kanye is running for president, and my son's <laughs> the year he graduated high school. All right, so we've all been inside for three, four months, whatever. '94 was a great year. '94 <laughs> was a phenomenal year compared to what. This oh my shit goodness. We're going Let's go through the history of the band. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. So, uh, so these guys started. So, of course, you know Chris and Rich, obviously brothers, right? Grew up playing together. Chris was the older brother, correct? And he's the singer, five or six years, maybe uh, thereabouts. Yeah, okay. and then Rich is the younger brother, and he's the guitar player. Okay. So they grew up playing together. They played in bands in high school together. Um, this is one of those stories of like boys that just always played together, kind right. of thing. Uh, Marietta, Georgia, okay, is their hometown. That's uh, uh, north of Atlanta, I think. Nah, outside, yeah, somewhere outside of Atlanta. I'm, yeah. I was just considered. I was just thought they were an Atlanta band. Yeah. So I, th- I think they would say that they're an Atlanta. I, I band. think probably so too. Yeah. Um, so '84, they put together their first formal band, if you will, okay. and that was called Mister Crow's Garden, which is named after a book. Okay, which I have not read. That's where they got the name. That, That's the name. It's, it's stylized Crow. Correct. C R O W E with with the E, just like they they kept. Um, so they toured around for a while, uh, did did pretty well for themselves, and so around about '89, they kind of finalized the lineup that was going to be on Shake Your Money Maker, and then in then they got signed to Deaf American Records. Um, so Deaf American. American, that's Rick Rubin's okay. label, and uh, <laughs> Chris Robinson has a funny story about that. I was not aware of this by any stretch of the imagination, but evidently uh, Ruben didn't want to have anything to do with them at first. He just signed them. Okay. And so Chris Robinson is quoted as saying, if you had one of the first million copies of Shake Your Moneymaker, it does not have Ruben listed as a producer. Really? After they sold a million, he went back and there, there's a line he put producer credits on the album after that point that is a, a that's a chris robinson story i don't know if it's docking if it's true or not but i thought that was pretty hilarious wow rick rubin uh the architect of beastie boys beastie boys yeah uh, uh if you've if uh if you're listening at home you've probably seen him even if you don't know where he is he has a massive beard real uh, weird looking dude like between him and george clinton there may be like yeah, a yeah, handful yeah, yeah. Of showers ever right <laughs> <laughs> and those might have all been George Clinton's. It's possible. Uh, but Rick Rubin out in L.A., I think it's L.A. where Singer Law Studio is, right? I believe that's correct. Uh, and from, from everything I, I can gather, his studio is just about the most incredible sounding studio ever. And he's an absolute brilliant producer. Well, the guy's a genius. I mean, obviously, uh, he could be an asshole, but he's also a genius. I mean, yeah. think about all the bands he's brought to us. Uh, um, you know that he does the Avid Brothers, which, I mean, it could... I did not know that. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah, which is a really interesting mix. But if you think like Beastie Boys... Licensed to ill, all the way to the, the Avid Brothers. Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, think about this: ear I, for mu- guy's got an ear for music, obviously, sure. or at least an ear for what he thinks is going to be commercially viable. Yeah. In some stretch of the imagination, uh, one but, way or the other. But think about this: Avid Brothers, uh, they take a lot of inspiration. I think they're very derivative. Now they're 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 very much their own creature, uh, but they take a lot of inspiration. I think from this kind of style that the black crows resurged you know, sure, southern bluegrass sure. uh, just, especially know, especially from the stuff that was influencing them on the first album yeah, yeah. and the second album and and of course avid brothers are scotty and and seth avid so you got brothers right, there so right brothers, yeah <laughs> my goodness how how we stick with the theme don't <laughs> i'll we? tell you what we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna hammer this one for a while so 90 they released shake your money maker which we talked about which is huge big huge lots of singles supernova uh, yeah, massive, just on the scene, here you go kind of thing. 
Um, came back in 92 and released the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, uh, which the name comes from, uh, it's a hymnal of gospel, I forget exactly, but it's got some religious, churchy, historical overtones Ooh. to it. Um, and if you listen to the album, that makes a lot of sense, totally right? Does, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's there's, um, there's there's some really good stuff on that album. But once again, still bluesy, very, but they've got some some other stuff going on. So, but, but it was it was really different, though, right? Oh, it was, it was a huge departure from the first album. With the, well, okay, there are still some of the like re, like sting me and stuff like that, just like real straightforward like blues rock tunes, right? With like the searing guitar and the big belting lyrics and the whole nine yards. But it was way more musical. It, it absolutely right? so was. There was a, there was a lot more of a focus on like Thorn in My Pride, for instance, is a that very much different than anything that you would have found on the first album. Yeah. You know, you yeah. can see that they're starting to branch out with the songwriting and really experiment a lot. Yeah. And I think like if you, if you think about jealousy again, uh, and you know, kind of that rocking, right. You know, that, that whole thing on shake your money maker. Well, you know, one of the things that started that, like that song and a lot of the stuff, uh, is that rich started playing an open G at some point, a couple of years before they got recorded, which is famously what like Keith Richards, mm-hmm. And the old blues guys all played an open G, and right. so and that used to frustrate the living shit out of me watching him play a song. <laughs> what the hell is he doing? You know. But anyway, but so yes, yeah, so, I mean that, that's back to that you know that historical you know, where are they getting the sound from and what influences and whatnot. Got it. Got it. Uh, what's interesting about you just said that about Keith Richards is uh, those guys were on tour, uh, and I, I can't remember what maybe they were in Sweden, uh, but they were in some European country, and they were. On the same bill, there were three bands. It was Black Crows, opening for Bob Dylan and Rolling Stones. Gotcha. Uh, and so they got to be around these huge influences for them. And I wonder if his open G playing came from about he was, that time. Well, he was already no, he was doing that before they got uh, before they actually made really? Shake Your Money Maker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He oh was, wow! So, so this is something that he really was copying. Keith uh, as a style. kid, he was like, "I'm going to do this. Yeah. You know, I like this sound." Yeah. So, uh, did, did you know that they were on tour with ZZ Top and got kicked off the tour? I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, apparently, they're fighting, and their hedonistic substance abuse was, was just so too much. much. It was like, y'all got yeah, to go. go. <laughs> you two boys are too wild for me. Oh, that's well, yeah. Uh, Chris is uh, famous for his uh, cocaine abuse. So. Yeah, yeah. Hey, he had a funny, um, funny quote in a Howard Stern interview that I was listening to where he said, yeah, I had a really bad... Chris Robinson has a, such a cool voice. He really does. Yeah. I mean, he, he really... He, so, he sounds like a rock star who's not trying to sound like a rock star, yeah. in my opinion. You know, he, he really does. Well, he, he has that Jerry Garcia kind of way about him, you know? Yeah, man, you know. Yeah, just kind of like up here in the clouds. You <laughs> right, know, just right. kinda, everything's just kind of cool. Kind of reminds me of somebody we know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but he he was talking about the fact that yeah I did a lot of drugs but you know what I had a lot of money so they were my drugs and so, my hey, money yeah. so so what I the fuck do what know? I want to well you know and they got into uh, they played I think it was between I think it was after Southern Harmony I'm trying to remember um, or maybe it was before Southern Harmony um, they played a festival in Atlanta which was like Norm, the National Organization Repeal of the Marijuana Abolition Laws. It was a pro-marijuana like benefit yeah. concert. Yeah. And from that point forward, that like they're like Stonerville, yeah. right? I mean, they were identified with uh, the drug culture, you know, from there on out. And uh, e- even more so than, you know, because with the first album, they were just like a touring band and nobody really knew. But, you know, this is the early 90s. You get up on stage at a you know, pro-marijuana rally. At a normalized... <laughs> yeah, and you're... Yeah. You, you're the weed guys. Here you go. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, and, uh, and Chris Robinson even grabs onto that. He even says, "Like, yeah, I was he embraced early, it. Yeah. yeah, I was an early weed guy." Well, it, the- it's funny about that because Rich, like, so you talk about Chris, and you talk 
do an interview with Rich, listen to him, watch an interview, read. He is like so calm. So sedate. So sedate. Right? Yeah. And uh, I watched an interview where Chris was giving him a hard time. I was like, I don't know how this guy stayed sober for 10 years. I mean, he doesn't use drugs. He's not an alcoholic. What the hell? You know, we've been on the road all this time. And, he, and Chris is over there. Yeah, so my brother's kind of an asshole sometimes. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> like a completely normal guy, you know. Yeah, and to the point where uh, after that Southern Harmony uh, album came out and they were on tour, uh, they had fights that were so legendary, right? Right, right. Uh, I'm, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, yeah, go ahead. Uh, but I'll go ahead and do it. The, these two brothers, uh, where they were, ended up hating each other. And Completely. Didn't, didn't talk for 20 years. Yeah. They didn't talk to one another. They also had a dad who was, you know, who was again a, an insufferable prick. But um, the fact that these two guys hated each other so much that they were fist fighting I, I, I regularly ha- in like rehearsals and you know things of that nature. I, the, there was a I forget which guy it was in the band that came on and it was at his audition. And he's starting and the, like the brothers just like throw down their instruments and just start hitting each other. And, yeah, and he I think it was maybe the keyboard player and he looks over at everybody else is like eh, and they're like no this is this is normal don't worry about it kind of thing. You know, I probably got the band member wrong, but. And they had a rule, by the way, no punching in the face. No punching in the face, yeah, okay. Because they, if, if you punch in the face, then someone would know. Uh, and so, so just keep, keep it below the neck. They'd wassle, you know, <laughs> right. they'd kick each other in the, in the shins. They'd pinch the shit out of each other, but they That's wouldn't That's some funny stuff, it really is. Yeah. Um, Somehow I, they managed to keep it together long enough to give us some really good albums. Though. Yeah, they did. So I'm, I made a little list here, Jason. Of, Go for uh, it. Brothers who played together in the music industry. Okay. who ended up hating each other and having part of this sibling rivalry. Listen, I'm a brother. You're a brother. You're the oldest of, of three. Right. I'm the middle of three. Uh, you didn't have a brother. I have an older brother. Right. Uh, but you know how it is. That's a slightly different dynamic, I think, I mean, brother to brother. But It is, but I mean, with any sibling, could you imagine going into business with any of your siblings and then being touring on the road all the time? You know, actually, I got to say, uh, one of them, sure, no problem. I could... <laughs> I could spend twenty four hours a day with her, and we'd be fine. My, my older brother's a cop, so I don't, I don't know. That Probably I'm, not. Yeah. <laughs> hey, if I go to work with him, then one of us is either uh, doing real good or real bad. Right, right, right. <laughs> but I made a list here. Uh, here are some brothers in the music industry uh, who ended up hating each other. Go for it. The Everly brothers, Don and Phil Everly, were legendarily really? uh, at odds with each other, and that's okay. why they split up. Ray and Dave Davies of the Kinks. Okay. The Kinks were probably the, of the 60s, they're the group between the Stones and the Beatles. Uh, they are the third of the triumvirate of, of sure. folks who really influenced a lot of people. Uh, but the reason they broke up is because Ray and Dave Davies. Brothers can't get along. Each other. Yeah. Uh, the Bee Gees, Barry and Robin Gibbs, fought for who would control the band. And when Barry won, Robin left. CCR, Credence Clearwater Revival. Yeah, that's right. Uh, John and Tom Fogarty. John is in... The, uh, John sings and plays all the leads, and Tom stands in the back and strums chords, and I'm sure he got tired of being the shadow. In the <laughs> shadow so. yeah. And John Fogarty is in the Rock, rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Allman Brothers, Dwayne and Greg hated each other, okay. uh, and it was it was sad that they were on the outs when Dwayne was in his uh, motorcycle accident and died. Uh, I'm going to come back to Oasis, but you mentioned Kings... <laughs> You mentioned Kings of Leon, yeah. Nathan, Caleb, and Jared Followell. Uh, three Caleb, brothers and one cousin. Yeah, uh, three brothers and one cousin in a band uh, that their father was a, a Pentecostal minister. Yeah, and they took him on like road tours. Yeah. And, yeah. and Caleb got so bad a few years ago that it pretty much ruined the Kings of Leon, which is unfortunate because that, yeah. that was really I, a it, great yeah. group. In yeah, kids, if you haven't listened to the early Kings of Leon stuff, go home and do it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, it, not brothers, sisters, Hart. Yeah, and, that's right. And Nancy Wilson, um, Anne's husband. I got mad at Nancy's 16-year-old son, 
for mm-hmm. letting his dog off the tour and broke that band up and kicked that kid's ass. And then when his twin brother came over to defend his 16 year old brother from this grown man, the man also kicked the brother's ass. And so uh, they had a, a pretty big falling out from I can I can imagine. <laughs> and of course, I mean, you can't have any kind of. Uh, conversation about brothers in rock and roll without talking about eddie and alex van halen oh absolutely right? yeah uh, those guys were, were always kind of uh, they were really in league with each other but apparently they had some pretty big fights back well then. and there's that whole tension thing i mean we, we were we were joking earlier about you know being with brothers and sisters and whatnot but regardless of how much you hate or like any member of anybody's family being around them all the time you know, 24, you're talking 24 seven, you're on the road. You could be the best of friends, but at some point you're going to get tired of being around yeah, this person. Yeah, you know, you're going to fight with somebody. Yeah, it's just the way it goes. And especially if you got that sibling thing. Yeah. Where you fought with them your entire life. Exactly. It's yeah. just, it's going to pop out. So let's go back to Oasis. Uh, the two biggest assholes ever in rock this and roll may, music. This may be the most famous. <laughs> Liam and Noel Gallagher of Oasis that at one time claimed themselves to be bigger than the Beatles. That's right. Uh, I, I can't remember which one of the Gallagher brothers. It was uh, Noel, Noel, the guitar player. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, said the Beatles said they were bigger than Jesus, but we're, we're bigger, bigger than, than the, the Beatles. Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Oasis was on tour with the Black Crows, and Rich and Chris got into a fight so bad that Liam and Noel Gallagher were standing outside of this room thinking, what is going on? Those guys are crazy. Those two brothers are crazy. We're talking about Liam and Noel Gallagher, who are the biggest asshole brothers that have ever been. In like like famously right? leave the stage. You know? <laughs> and Chris and Rich had an epic fight right. in front of these guys that left them in awe. <laughs> That's pretty funny. It's, it's fun, right? It, it really is. It really is. So uh, leading up to, to Amorica... Right, yeah. So we've got uh, now. We, now we know the history of these brothers. That by this point, uh, they they were fighting so much after Southern uh, the, the Southern Harmony album. Right. Uh, that they had to have separate tour buses. They couldn't even be on the same bus together. Right. So they're on this. They're on this big tour called the High as the Moon tour, to, in support of Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. And they get done. And this is in '93 uh, ish, like early '93 kind of thing. And, uh, so we went, we went 1990, 1992. Now they're on tour. They're on tour in 93. Now, yeah. So, so you get back to Atlanta, and evidently Chris goes to L.A. Okay. Like he, it's just, everybody else is at home. He goes to L.A. Yeah. And just goes out there and just like does copious amounts of coke and hangs out and has a good time, right? And so at some point he convinces the band to come out and record an album out there. So they all go out there, and Chris is going to produce this album. Okay. Right? This is going to be his, his album. stamp on the Black Crows, right? And the album's going to be called Tall which is a 30s jazz allusion to being high. Okay. Right? You're tall. So if you're so of saying you're high, you say you're tall. It's so, tall. of course, okay. Chris is cool. He's going to call it tall, right? Yeah. So they go into the studio, and they start recording. And uh, Rich Robinson, I read an interview with him where he said they must have spent a $100,000 liquor bill in the studio. Unbelievable. Just drugs everywhere, right? And uh, Chris Robinson said that you know he, he would be up all night partying, Rich would be in the studio, and he would mix a whole bunch of stuff. And then Chris would come in and like work all night and delete all the shit that Rich did. Wow! <laughs> and Rich would come in back next morning, delete all the shit that Chris did. And so basically, you know, they spent half a million dollars recording a record and just threw it away. Every night they would re- they would yeah, it with the other. They, they spent half a million dollars and just had to dump the whole thing. Now, fortunately, um, some of the songs. Like some of the songs that they wrote there are really good songs, and they're on Amorica. And as we go through the album, I'll notate which ones actually ended up surviving this insanity. 
But yeah, I mean, can, can you imagine? Like, you're one of the hottest bands. You're selling records left and right, and you're in the studio, and you guys can't get along well enough to not spend a half a million dollars on a record that you have to throw in the trash can. I mean, or deleting each other's shit every just night. Just deleting each other's shit every night. I mean, what, <sighs> it, it, the fact that the rest of the band was like capable of sticking around through this is a testament to something. I don't know what. <laughs> well, probably patience what, what or a belief, job. Yeah, <laughs> belief in the product, perhaps. You know. <laughs> But anyway, so after uh, after all this craziness, '94, uh, they go back in the studio and record Amorica, which is what we're here to talk about today. Um, you know me; I'm a kind of a I'm a gear nut. Yeah. And uh, so these guys, the, the guitar tones on this are just absolutely luscious. There's so much uh, texture here. You know? It's insane. Uh, there, there was like a like a tapestry. Of, of sound. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a good way to put that, it. That, well, like when you think of like what you were just talking about there, that they were recording and mastering and deleting and mastering and re recording mm-hmm, right. and you know, doing this over and over, it's a wonder that they had so many layers. But when the final product came out, it was not at all what Chris wanted originally. Oh, right? not, not even close, yeah. which is why they scrapped everything and left. Like we're, we can't see each other. And so take wow. some time off and then go back into the studio next year and let's try this again. Okay, so this this was my, after after researching this, uh, over the past uh, month or so, uh, and reading through it, I, I kept thinking these guys built up to this point where they made this brilliant album that was right, right. so brilliant, uh, but it was at the cost of everything, their family. Uh, Chris Robinson didn't go to his mother's funeral because he was right. in such a fight with him. Uh, the fact that he couldn't be around his nieces and nephews. I mean, that's just, it's so sad oh, yeah. to me, you know? Oh, sure. There's, there's a lot of toll that goes into that sort of thing. Yeah. But. But, but they also had this brilliant album. Right. Um, but, and you have to think that the uh, the several months in the studio of the band, like writing and recording and playing, probably just made them all that much better when they went into the studio to do this in the first place. You think but, there yeah. was some, like, some, some, some spite playing, uh, like performing like out of spite, that's trying to outdo each other maybe? I, I don't know. I mean, anything's possible. I mean, maybe between the brothers, I I can't imagine the rest of the band had a lot of. Uh, I mean, you ever see any interviews with like Steve Gorm, the drummer? I mean, he's like the smiliest, happiest guy you could imagine. Of course, he did have a tell-all book come out last year, which I haven't read. So, so who knows? <laughs> who knows what his actual opinion is on the thing? But I, I read in two thousand six they released an album. I guess Chris released an album called The Lost Crows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is the tall the, stuff. Yeah, it's got a lot of the tall stuff yeah, on it. Yeah, gotcha. there's like two. I think there's two sides to it, and one of them is uh, the stuff that ended up on America, and the other is a bunch of other stuff. If I, I haven't listened to it, so gotcha. Uh, so uh, I noted that Chris uh, played a lot of Telecaster, the Fender Telecaster. He does, but he plays a lot of other stuff too. Really, They're, he's kind of all over the place. He's and, a really good guitar player. Right? He's a fantastic guitar player. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I mean, he he composes the songs, he plays the rhythm stuff, and some of the leads. But Mark is mostly the lead player. Gotcha. He, he, when you when we listen to the album, he's the guy that's painting over everything. I see. You know, the constant riffing and the notes here and there and this and that. That's that's his that's his department. The songwriting process, though, Rich would the come Rich up and Chris. With, yeah, Rich would actually put some music down and then give it to Chris, and then Chris talks about. A song, a hit song, falls out of the sky. I don't know why. It's it just, just there. Does. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, she talks to angels. Was about uh, from from shake your money maker. Was about a friend of Chris's that had a heroin addiction. Right. Right. Uh, and he's telling this story about this girl, and it's just one of the saddest like ballads ever about this girl. But there's also like these weird like she has a lock of hair in her, in her pocket. pocket. Right. Right. Yeah, from some kid. Well, I mean, what was a kid? Was that a kid of hers that died? You I mean, know? you don't know. Uh, and you don't know how much of that's uh, him coloring the story, 
right? Make, make, that tapestry of lyrics, yeah, yeah. So make, making it pretty. Sound. You know, yeah. it's like I got the I got the thing here, but we're going to embrace it here. Um, yeah, he, he writes with uh, his his lyrical style is very. It's, it's like poetry, sure. And uh, especially on this album, after they got away from a lot of the de- more derivative blues stuff. I mean, there's some funny lines on here, and there's some great hooks and stuff. But I mean, if you really read the lyrics, it's. I think it's cynical. It's whatever. Uh, most of us, what's coming out of his head, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it, it, this is not the kind of, uh, this isn't like a storyteller album. Like, we've done a couple of albums where, like, the lyrical content was very specific. I'm telling this story, or I'm writing an album um, about protest or about this or about, th- this is this is not like this that. This is not, right? Yeah. But it's not really disjointed. But the, Oh, the, no, it, no. I think it's great. I mean, but it's one of those albums that you can sing along to, and you can find the lyrics great. You can find them amusing. You can find them touching. But it doesn't matter because it's just... It's for you to interpret. Sure. Uh, you know, really is what it boils down to, I think. So we have Shake Your Moneymaker. That was huge. Mm-hmm. We have um, we have their next album that comes out, and it is... Pretty huge as well. Uh, yeah. Th- there were four number one uh, rock songs on that. that. That had never been happened before. So, that, that had never, ever, ever right. happened before. So let's, yeah, let, let's, talk, uh, let's talk about why Amorica doesn't end up on that list, right? <laughs> so, so Amorica comes out, and it is very well critically received. It's my favorite album of theirs, and everybody else. Rolling Stone loved it. Talked about the fact that they had kind of they developed this unique sound. They'd shaken off their retroness kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, Guitar World, which is a magazine I was religious about at a certain point in my life, said it was uh, one of the fifty iconic albums that defined nineteen ninety four. Wow, Amorica, Amorica. This album, that this we're, album we're, we're talking to about. Today. I mean, so this album was insanely well received critically. So we went huge, Supernova. Amorico. And this should be Supernova. This should be it. Three singles off of this, uh, Conspiracy, Hi-Head Blues, and Wiser Time, all did very well, all had videos, huge singles, right? So what happened? Well, here's what happened. Um, Background, this album sold 500,000 copies, which sounds like a lot of copies, right? Most bands would be like... If I sold 5,000 copies, I'd be happy. This sold half a million copies. But Shake Your Moneymaker sold 5 million copies. Southern Harmony and Musical Companion sold 2 million copies, which is still that's double platinum. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, a million albums is, a is platinum, platinum, right? right yeah. and, and this sold a quarter of that. Yeah, th- this this went gold, which is a massive disappointment for a band that has sold millions and millions and has toured all over the world. And the reason this happened is because in their hubris of releasing this album, they decided to make the cover of this album. And I guess they'd reached the point in their band's career that nobody was going to tell them no. Right. They made their cover a cover from a 1976 issue of Hustler magazine, which, if you haven't seen it, looks exactly like this. It is a close-up of a bikini that is being worn by a woman. Um, It is an American flag bikini, and it has some pubic hair coming out of the top. Really black. Very black pubic hair on a very tanned woman in a very nice little bikini. So they released this album, and lo and behold, Walmart, Kmart, all of the big box stores refuse to distribute it. They will not put it on their shelves. Wow. So who knew Walmart had a moral conscience? What's <laughs> This is 94, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's 94. It is what it is. Now nobody probably even look at it and they throw it on the shelf, right? Yeah. You know, but it is what it is. So this now, is I, not- I did know that Walmart, uh, when Appetite for Destruction came out, on the original tape liner, mm-hmm. there was a cartoon of a robot that was sexually assaulting. Yeah, that's, that's right. And Walmart refused to have that. that. Until that was removed. Yeah, so yeah. If, if you have a Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction album. and You, you got one of the original out, ones, yeah. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't have the lyrics in it. That's probably because you bought that from Walmart. Right. 
So they have to, uh, Black Crow's, the record company has to go back and release another version of the album, which is the one that became available, which is blacked out. So you can see the uh, American flag bikini, but everything around is just a black cover. So basically you're just looking at like a triangle American flag at that point. You have no context for whatever else is supposed to be on it. But by that point, the ship had sailed, right? Because, I mean, the way this works is you've got videos coming out, and the videos promote the album sales. Album sales promote the concert tickets. You know, there's this record, this this steamroll thing that has to happen in order for you to sell records. Right. And because they got yanked out of all the big boxes for that, that important period when the album's dropping and when the everything's happening, you know, they just lost the momentum, and there you go. Wow. So if you're looking at your uh, your device right now listening to this, uh, look real close at the logo for this episode. I have both uh, both covers on there. The, so you can the, see what we're talking about. Yeah, now. the main picture will be, uh, we'll call it the pube, the pube hubris there you go. There you uh, go. album, and then the one that's peeking out behind it would be the, the black one. Right. Uh, Columbia House was really big at this time. The, uh, the mail-in record. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Buy, wondered, buy a penny, get eight, and then you have to sign up for a year's worth of records kind of deal. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. I wonder which one they sold. You know, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, I, I think the record distribution at the time, I mean, we still had things like Sound Warehouse yeah. and stuff like that in the early 90s. Um, but, I mean, most most suburban kids, you know, you bought your record at a Walmart, at Walmart or a Target or Kmart or, Kmart or yeah. you know, whatever it happened to be. I mean, you were there with your parents anyway. Sure. That's when it's a good time to pick it up, right? Um, you know, these places weren't stupid. They're not going to put something on the shelf that mom's not going to buy and put in the stocking <laughs> for Christmas, you know? So, I mean, it's, it, it is what it is, but it, it, it's... It's a shame because this is such a great album, but there, there's a reason why if you talk about the Black Crows, a lot of people aren't going to grab much off of this one because yeah. it, it, half a million copies. I mean, it got, and with everything else we talked about that sold in 94, all of these huge multi-platinum albums, I mean, this thing just got lost in the shuffle. Yeah, and everything these guys touched turned to gold, right? And so it was really weird when this came out, and I remember when this album came out, again, because I was a senior in high school. Uh, I remember when the album came out, uh, and being so excited about you know the new Black Crows, and then when when you said this, I thought, oh, all right, can I? Why'd you talk about this album because of the album cover? Right, which is ironic. Sure, because sure. No one bought it because of that because album of the album cover. cover. Right. So I have it. On, I have it on vinyl now. Okay, and I have the original because they've since re-released everything, and nobody has the. We don't, we don't worry about that sort of right. thing anymore. Right. We're um, not so. Uh, we're not so uh, Victorian. <laughs> <laughs> so Victorian in the nineties. We're saying. It, 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 and then Bill Clinton happened. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> it all went downhill. Woo, from there. there we go. You know, but it, it is kind of hard to imagine if you think about it, somebody not selling the record because of that. And yeah. uh, you know, Rich Robinson, I saw an interview with him where he talks about that, and he's like, you know, you know, with everything else going on, I mean, you, you can you can put out albums of people shooting each other, and you can talk about drugs, and you can talk about, you know, we put a couple of pubic hairs on the cover of our record, and all of a sudden we can't sell it. There is there is a there is a Real insanity to that. There really you know. is, and you know when you look at it. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's provocative when you look at it. But um, like, it, it, is it really that big of a deal? I mean, it's, uh, it's. I mean, not really. No. I mean, you wouldn't think so, right? I mean, it's. I I I saw something um, about it. May have been an interview with with Chris Robinson where he said he thought it was funny that there was such an uproar about it because there were some people that weren't even sure if it was a male or a female. Because he, he's a very very thin guy. He's like six foot two and maybe breaks 160 pounds. I mean, I never had a question about that. But Well, Silence of the Lambs had that thing with a tuck. I mean, you very well could have tucked it. Uh, okay, but, fair but, enough. But my point is sure, that sure, sure. Uh, the actuals 
skin parts, you know, or whatever. Like, you can't really discern that. All you see is the hair. Well, and I think, you know, minus that, it probably, you probably wouldn't have had a lot of people throw a fit about it because it's not uh, hyperly sexualized or anything. Sure. I mean, it's not a provocative pose. It's literally just somebody standing there. Yeah. You know, so Uh, not too much to get mad about other than this is Walmart and they weren't going to. I get it. You know, I mean, whatever. I, during that time, again, we, we just talked about Midnight Oil. Uh, the album that we did before was in 87. And then you had this in 94, which is just seven years apart. Uh, there was also some provocative art that came about. You know, if you think about the Maplethorpe exhibit. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. stuff that was there. Uh, the, the guy, the New York artist that uh, had the... Uh, um, it was, uh, it was it was called I think called Piss Christ. Oh yeah, the crucifix in the urine in the, in yeah, the yeah, jar yeah. of urine. Yeah, was, so, was that was that early nineties? That was about the same yeah, time. I think you're yeah, right. and I think so you're right. I, maybe people were just kind of sensitive about this whole thing. That I, maybe a hyper reaction to what was going on in the art world. Yeah. It's just like we don't want any of this nonsense kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. You know? and, and, yeah, and, and we were and fighting all, the parental advisory whole thing, and all that was going on as well. But like I said, I, asked, I, I called it hubris. You would think that with this massive distribution arm behind them. Somebody would have, it's like Spinal Tap. You remember the the smell the glove, and it's like <laughs> yeah. we can't do that. You know, you, like you're holding her, you're making her smell the glove. You know, you can't do that. You know, like somebody would have gone. I don't think Walmart's gonna cover this, or maybe like print it out and take it to the Walmart record exec and go, "Would you guys put this in the store?" And he goes, "No." And it's like, all right, back to the drawing board before we, you know, burn a million of these. Yeah, you know? before we spend a half a million dollars in, in recording. Yeah, or uh, just just. Sending out the record. I mean, the record's already recorded by the time they get around to putting the cover on it and printing it, right? Oh, that's true. You, you think somebody would have thought about that before, but hey, but now we get a great story out of it. It's just a shame that more people didn't get to hear the music. You know? that, that's true. Uh, and, and my buddy Furley, uh, who I uh, who I consult with quite a bit when it comes to musical stuff, he said to me when I told him what we were listening to, he said, "What which songs are on that album? And I wrote back, none that you know. None that you know. Yeah. Like I said, they had three singles, which are three fantastic songs, and those three singles had three videos. But there you go. But yeah. mo- most people who know Hard to Handle and She Talks to Angels, they're they're not going to know. But once again, five million and two million copies. Yeah. You know, this is a whole this is a whole different ballgame. There's a lot of albums, and like I said, that sea of multi million selling albums that came out that year. I mean, it's a it's a disappointing part of the music industry, right? But if you don't get to the market and you don't saturate it. Then something else comes along next month, and everybody's listening to that, and then there it goes. Sure. Well, and and these guys, uh, they had so much, so many of their influences in some of the early stuff. Uh, maybe this is kind of that Robert Johnson thing. You know, you go to the crossroads, you sell your soul to the devil, so that you become this incredible musician, and then you get killed. Right? <laughs> you get killed. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, by the way, I don't know what the record sales were on the albums after this because I pretty much stopped listening to them. Because and this is their pinnacle. They go. This was it. Yeah. This is the pinnacle. And you know, and after this, like uh, Mark Ford was on the next album, and then I think they that there was a period where they actually the sound man would turn him off on stage because his heroin addiction got so bad. Wow. And so he was gone. And then at some point, you know, the brothers are still fighting, and then Johnny Colt, who's the bass player, quits and leaves, and then you know they're hiring other people, and like th- this is the last one with like the core group and everything all being together, and then it's just boom downhill yeah. from there. Once again, we'll talk about Zeitgeist from time to time. These guys hit, they hit big, and then they took a sledgehammer to the crystal of the zeitgeist, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they created what I think is one of the most brilliant albums of my favorite decade of of music in this album. I, and, I agree completely. And what what's crazy is when this album was made, it destroyed the band. Um, 
So it's that. You know, Maybe they were destroying around the around it, but at this, it happened at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. one way or the other. Interesting. Yeah, let's. Uh, you want to take a break? And let's do it. We're going to come take back a short and talk break. about it. Yeah, and when we come back, we're going to get front row seats to watch this band descend into a full on war. Uh, but again, they're creating the most gorgeous tapestry of music. Uh, you may not remember the, the songs from back then, but hopefully, you'll remember the songs after this episode. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Hey everybody, this is Dan Jablons from Retail Smart Guys. If you're listening to this Our Favorite Album podcast and you know Jason and Michael, then maybe you're in retail. And if you are, then you should know that my company, Retail Smart Guys, could help your company achieve better sales, greater profits, greater cash flow, and a whole lot more fun. So visit www.retailsmartguys.com or call my personal sale at 818-720-2585 and I'll tell you more about it. Attention retail store owners. Imagine this. Your customer walks in and is greeted by an associate with a tablet in hand. As they browse the store, your rep makes recommendations based on their current selections, all the while building an accurate customer profile that you can use to improve business. On the back end, this powerful retail management software ensures you have the correct inventory on hand, follows up with customers to bring them back to the store, and provide the best possible service. Turn each and every one of your employees into a superstar at RetailProDemo.com. That's Retail ProDemo.com. This is our favorite albums, and on this episode, we are listening to the 1994 masterpiece album by the Black Crows, Amorica. Uh, that is stylized, lowercase a, and it is Amorica, not America, and it has a period after it. That's correct. As uh, Chris Robinson called it, it's uh, our America. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was uh, that was his, in his interviews. Like, this is our America. It's not yeah. your America. It's our America. Yeah. So, um, St- Stoner Rock at its finest. Absolutely. Uh, you know, my, my impression of this thing... Um, Again, listening to this on a damn near repeat for the last month yeah, uh, is, God almighty, this thing kicks some serious butt, right? It really does. And it, yeah. and it kicks off by kicking butt. I it, mean, it it, sure it's, go, it's going to this – is, uh, this is one of those albums that starts with a great first track that lets you know what you're in store for. It, it sure and does. Here, here it comes, you yeah. know, kind of thing. It's like it's, you're going to get your ass kicked for – the rest of the time just yeah. enjoy it yeah but my only pre-listening notes on this thing was that each album tend to pay homage to a certain maybe style a song maybe a group uh but in true brilliance uh true artistic brilliance uh, these guys made they, they may take a song that they're pulling inspiration from and they made it their own sure there's you know? a there's a, obviously some homage to uh you know some of the greats, and there, there's some Zeppelin-esque stuff mm-hmm. going on here. Uh, Gorman is a very John Paul Jones-esque. I said sense. "esque" twice in the same sentence. Sorry, kind <laughs> 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 kind of drummer. You know, yeah. I mean, with that just like that constant, like powerful, heavy John, met- bon- John Bonham. Yeah, John Bonham. Okay, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, metronome like uh, drumming. 
Yeah. Um, and, and big guitars. So th- there's obviously the classic rock feel to it. Yeah. Without question. Yeah. But I, I'll, I'll make some notes as we go through some maybe some of the songs that to me it sounds like. Uh, but the other thing. Yeah, I let's I do want, that. That sounds like fun. The other thing I want to point out is every single one of these uh, has. Uh, the way the lyrics are written by Chris, Chris wrote the lyrics, mm-hmm. uh, is kind of a scathing uh, callback to the brother-sibling rivalry. Uh, there's some anger here. You think so? Like I, said, I, I think that there's some there's some parts here where may, maybe not even directed back to Rich, but he's but just mad in, about But just something. in general. Yeah, yeah. Just like the overall overarching yeah. theme of, hey, you could be yeah. right about uh, that. Uh, and so, and that definitely starts off with the very first track this on this album. <laughs> this is gone. Uh, I love the way this thing builds. Love the way it just starts kicking ass. And it's it's like an intro to this album that we've been fist fighting for the past three years. And here we go. And folks, this is where we're going to start fighting. And once again, just some real like kind of retro. Carlos Santana. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. A little stoner vibe to it, but here it comes. You know, we're going to rock out now. Love that. Kind of that thin electric sound. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Slow build. Yeah. I, I love. Love that. Add, add, add. add and then build. here we go. Yeah. yeah. And that's the perfect opening track to this album because it really follows along with that. It is. It, yeah. and, and one thing that we're going to get a whole lot more of on here is that Mark Ford. Listen how slow. Like, he's just holding notes. Like, he doesn't have to overplay all the time, which I love. Yeah. So we're still building. The bass is going to kick in a second. Right. I love when the bass kicks in. When the bass player has the audacity to lay out for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's great. We haven't had a bass guitar yet. And here we go. We are in this thing. This and now we're jamming. going, yeah. yeah. We are jamming. And now we got some building guitar. There is so much groove in this. It's ridiculous. Yeah. He's saying we're, we're about to burn out right here. Right, That's right. The say. Gone. gone. Good riddance, I'm gone. love how he pushes that upper register. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's really good at pushing those notes out. He really is. And the other thing I like about his choruses is when he does those big things, he's actually singing lyrics. He's just phrasing it. Yeah, yeah. And there's the great Mark Ford. You hear how Mark Ford's kind of in the right ear, just always playing notes throughout the whole song. I mean, yeah. There's just something going on constantly. It's crazy. So funky, too. Yeah, wow. it is. Kind of that James Band move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. I had my notes lit separately, I guess. Um, yeah, definitely some of that without question. Yeah. Such a big hook. 
I like the little key change there for the solo. That's yeah. kind of cool. And that is so thick. It's that bass. Like real high. Yeah. I think he's underappreciated in their sound. <laughs> so, Here's your piano. So every time I listen to this, uh, my wife said that keyboard reminds her of like the Muppets playing. <laughs> Dr. Tooth. Yeah. So much sound there, man. I've tried to count that out to figure out where the beats are. It, it, it almost feels like they're adding an extra beat on onto one measure, and I can't figure it out just yet. But wow, 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 wow! It's like there's such a thick sound. This is not a uh, chords band right yeah. i mean there's everybody's doing something different and it's all over the place and gorman's holding the whole thing together yeah his scream is great too wow chris just had that voice it's fantastic yeah and his uh his dance moves on stage you know, oh yeah like so all that wacky shit yeah, yeah. Love that so much. Love it. And Fantastic. then right into this next like groove pattern, uh, funky wah. And this was uh, this was a single. Yeah, this was this is a conspiracy. And this was also this this song was on the tall was part it? of the t- part of the tall session. Okay, got it. Wow, wackle, wackle, wow. There's a little wah pedal in there. Oh, right? you gotta love that. And he's doing fuzz bass. I I, I was able to isolate, just kind of messing with my sound. Right, he's, right. He's got a fuzz bass there. Nice. Um. The callback that I had on this one is Remedy. Yeah. They called back to their very own their song. Their very own song. Yeah. Remedy, right. which was uh, This has Southern. got some of that same chord progression. Yeah. The da na na Yeah. Yeah. And that constant step down thing. Yeah. The groove pattern. Yeah. Absolutely. The musicality is so much better than the previous two albums. It, it really man. is. Well, they, they've grown so much. I mean, they've just gotten so good at what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, years and years of lessons and playing. Uh, yeah, and that, like, they, they always had the ability to be funky and groovy, but, like, there's just an overarching groove feel to this that I, I think really takes a band that is confident in what they're doing and knows what they're doing because it, it requires a little bit of a layback to allow that groove, right? And yeah. you can't overplay the chorus is so pretty. Don't neglect me. Be my conspiracy. I love the way he says baby. Don't neglect me, baby. Baby, yeah. I love calling someone baby. And so this is one of his examples of being humorous in his lyrics. Okay. Like, there's a lot of... He's having some fun. You get a question about your answer. <laughs> or like the first verse. Did you hear the one about last year? They said it was all a lie. You know what I mean? It's, this stuff's humorous. It yeah, is. It it's is. fun. Yeah. Almost poking fun of themselves. Yeah, he's not taking himself too seriously at all. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> 
I love how he plays around in the space. Like yeah. His, like his space is everything in the ether. Like everything he wants to land on. There is no part of this that he doesn't feel comfortable singing over. Yeah. Which um, we're going to get to later on. There is a song that he sings along with. The, the, and I hate it. I hate that. I, I don't like that song. I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. He's, he's at his best. And I think that the band is at their best when they're kind of doing this. Like disparate. Yeah, they're just yeah. all over the place. You know, Mark Ford is kind of doing his thing. The keyboards are wherever. You know, Rich is holding down. Rich and Johnny and Steve are holding down, like, the song. And everybody else is just kind of painting around it. Right? I think it's really the highlight. Yeah, I got it. Oh, a little Hammond organ. Let's, do it. Let's do it right here. Listen. Wow. Listen. Wow. And, and, and like the way they bring the tempo back there for that, that, it, that is a throwback. Yeah. But just the way they bring it into the song that is not a throwback is really cool. And paying homage, but still having fun with it. Yeah, absolutely. Into that 70s stuff. But you know, the very first album that we did was the Hold Steady. And I'll be damned if they didn't kind of copy that exact. Right yeah, yeah, exactly so right. Like, again, with like derivative, derivative, derivative. And some these guys were doing it the first time. They were copying it the first time and made it their very own on this. You know, and that, so that, unique. And that, that's, that, that's a great call because you're right. Like Franz of the Hold Steady, they his keyboard organ solos. They, they would do the same dropout thing and do the big big chord. Yeah. yeah. I love Richie's guitar here. He's just like playing. It's just like a little slight melody in the background along with what Chris is singing. It's really cool. Yeah. But there are a lot of lyrics to this song. Um, I saw an interview where Chris Robinson said that uh, he could he, he doesn't know his social security number, <laughs> but he remembers all of these somehow. Yes, he remembers all the lyrics. Well, it, that's an interesting point that you bring up. With the, with the exception of the choruses, where he obviously repeats himself because it's a chorus. You know, a lot of bands have a bad habit of, and a lot of bands I love have a bad habit of like repeating the third verse. You know, doing the first verse and then the third verse again and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Like he's got almost different lyrics all the way through, yeah, or at least variations on whatever his theme was. And I think that's so cool that he just just keeps belting it out. You know, he speaks Spanish here, going into high head blues. High head blues. Uh, at the very end, he's going to say "Esta la mejor mota," which is it's the best marijuana. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and this definitely has a. This is Santana. All my friends <laughs> war. Yeah. know the low rider. I mean, it's it's this is a this has got some throwback fun yep. to it. I, I've got one other reference on here that's so freaking like out of nowhere. Um, there's going to be a weird sound here that's kind of like a xylophone that is straight off of Tom Waits' album Rain Dogs. Oh, that's a nice listen, catch. Listen, hear it back there. Yeah. Chris Robinson was featured in High Times Magazine in 1992, and it was a big damn deal. It was it was a big deal. Yeah, they they've always you know since that time they've always been pretty. Uh, or at least he has been pretty forward with the whole thing. Yeah. This song is high head blues. It's about marijuana. This is this is a him being high straight up. Yeah. yeah, like sometimes I have a ghetto in my mind, and other times my high head is fine. Yeah, you know. So you hear that that little. Yeah, you know what that's called? That's called like a gira. G U I R A Agita. Agita. It's, it's shaped like a fish and it has like little, little yeah, ridges on it. Gotcha. Yeah. And you rub a quarter or a rub a stick across just to make the little percussion. Because yeah. there's a yeah. there's a percussionist that's playing on this that's not a credited member of the band that adds a lot of percussion to it. One thing I love about this is that we've got 
the guitar and keyboard and the other guitar all playing a variation on that do 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 do. They're all playing it slightly different. Yeah. It really adds a fatness, like a real fullness to the sound. And then we go back to rocking. Yeah, which is what these guys are so fucking good at. Just rocking. I, I love that groove, funk, and then big, huge, loud hook yeah. thing. It's with cool. The, with the big hemming back there, you know, it's like a totally filling up all movement. that space. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I want to get high and listen to this song. Um, I've I've heard it's a great way to listen to the album. <laughs> that is Carlos Santana. It Carlos, is. It is. I'm not a big Santana fan. I'm not either because I think his shtick is way overdone. He overplays everything. He does, and especially his guitar. I'm not taking the guy's obviously a maestro, but he Absolutely. just plays constantly and it wears me out. Yeah. But they're taking the best of that and putting it into something kind of cool and new, yeah. right? Little bongos or conga back there. I can't remember which one. I think it's it bongos. Santana played at uh, Woodstock, mm-hmm. and so everyone would say, you know, Santana played at Woodstock. That's yeah, you should like him. Yeah, Sean and I also played. Also it. played yeah. If there's one thing you should know about me, I hate Sean and I. Hate Sean and I. <laughs> and we haven't established that by now. <laughs> I like that in the chorus. The charmed life it is. At least they tell you so. But it ain't like they say it's so. I mean, you got to think he's uh, singing a little bit about all the time on the road in the past few years, and, and now we're gonna get crazy. Dude, it's like going into a head shop in 1994. It absolutely not, is. Yeah. It absolutely is. Got the mushroom blacklight poster on the wall, and obviously, yeah, no self-respecting shop would have not had one, right? Well, I mean, before that Sublime album came out, this is what all the all the stoners were listening to, right? Yeah, d- didn't Sublime? Yeah, that's right, because that was like 95, 96, or 96, yeah. 96 yeah. yeah. We'll get back to that. And I just love the uh, the chaos at the end. Here's your Spanish right here. Esta es la mejor. <laughs> Complete with the long inhale. Yeah, it's the <laughs> best marijuana. It's the best marijuana. Okay, so this is Curse Diamond. This was also on Tall. I love the song. I think this is one of the better tracks on the album. And especially, I like the way they the way it starts. And then when it kicks in, the just the rocky is just the rockiness of it's fantastic and the chord progressions it's so melodic and so heavy all at the same time crazy deep sound oh yeah um so they played a whole mess of different amps like normally the they both played through matchless Mm -hmm. and they had a guy that hot rodded them for them but evidently on this album they pulled in maces and fenders and vox and just orange and just whatever they could get their hands on in the studio and just like literally had a field day and just went at it really and it really if you listen to the album as you have so much you know it contributes like the guitars they don't sound the same all the way through there's like all these different sounds and tones throughout which that's got to be an amazing experience to just like record with everything yeah one of one of each yeah no bring me the bachelor's yeah so we mentioned this is Cursed Diamond. Um, my notes. I love that line right there. Unzip my pride. Unzip my pride. That's such a great line. Open me up wide. There's a uh, level of self-loathing here. Yeah, I lose myself. I forget myself. I hate myself. I fight myself. And he even asks. But then he point. goes back. I want to shine for you. I want to sparkle. Yeah. Because he's a cursed diamond. 
So I, I had on here, is this about heroin addiction? Or is this about a girl? I, I don't know. It's a good question. Know, maybe, maybe it's introspective because, like you said, he said, I hate myself. Doesn't everybody hate themselves? Doesn't everybody, yeah. I scare myself and I tell myself it's all in my mind. Yeah. Love that right there. It's, 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 it's beautiful poetry. It really is. Yeah. And once again, back to what we talked about in the beginning, the nice thing about it is it could be whatever you want it to be. Well, it's hard to rhyme with something with Splendor. He figured it out, he though. He got it, though. Surrender and Splendor. That slide. Slide, yeah. Yeah. I love that build-up and hold. That's really cool. There he is playing in that space again. God, it has such a Zeppelin derivative. It, it really reminds me a lot of like the physical graffiti period of Zeppelin. I think we get some. Do we get some slide here at the like a, on a solo? And there may be some steel guitar that's kind of playing over the background inside the tapestry as well. There's some. Yeah, maybe. There you go. There's the slide. Such a lush sound. It's just, I mean, there's guitars just kind of like echoing everywhere. everywhere. Keyboards in the background, guitars all over the place. Yeah. Here's that solo I was talking about. Calling back to some of those 70s guitar gods like Ted Nugent, you know, the ones that would just completely fill up every single space they could find with, with just badass playing. You know, like, it, there's so much of that in there that I, I guess that's for just being a badass. Yeah, but he never overplays. No, he doesn't. Yeah. It, well, you know what? I said that other one was like Santana, but it was like Santana without the overplaying. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. weird, right? He's very, very tasteful. And I cannot overstate enough how great the drumming is. He he's so perfect. Two and fours are so strong, right? He's so perfect, and, and still plenty of fills and fun going on. But yeah. man, he is just rock solid. That kick drum is so like powerful too. And there's the Bonham reference again, right? Yeah.
poured your heart out, and now you get a little bit of this at the end. So much tone. It, Rich Rob, I was, I was literally about to say Rich Robinson's guitar tone is just absurd. <sighs> it's so fat and thick and rich, but you can hear it all. This is a fun song. This is nonfiction. This was also from the Tall Sessions. Bongos. The the bass on this, the bass line on this, there's two, has got to be probably the best part of the song. He really drives it, I think. Now listen to that um Who's the? Oh, little help from my friends. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's his name? I know we're talking about. What is it? Okay. Come back to it. I love that line. I don't know my telephone number, but you kiss good, and I'd like to see you tomorrow. <laughs> and one of the most cold-hearted lines ever, right here. This is fan- this is so great. I'm gonna shut up. And why not? And will that work? No, it will not. <laughs> wow. That is fantastic. That's some woman-hating shit I right there, I love that right? line, man. I love that line. <laughs> you know, is it is it some woman-hating shit, or is it kind of... Uh, it's pretty cold-blooded. Well, is it, or is he... Well, I don't know about... Is he like, being hubris? I, I mean, not, is, it kind of, is it kind of one of those fun things, like you're sitting around like, all right, baby, I ain't gonna have a girl like you. No, 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 no. I mean, it is... I, I don't know. I, I don't think I it's, like, I don't think it's all women. I think it's like... Well, somebody he's, he's, singing to, he's singing to somebody specifically. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's not question. saying I don't want a daughter because all women are bad. He's no, like, he's I don't want to somebody specifically. Yeah, because yeah, if we had a daughter, she'd be just like you, and I can't handle that. See, you know, I, I've just, always I've always taken it that he was being playful. I always thought it was kind of a funny <laughs> line. Kind of like, oh, baby, I don't want, she can't be like you. There's no, no hi-hat, no ride cymbal, just some bongos back there playing. No bass drum, just... Mark Ford's guitar riff here is just drives the chorus. Yeah. So bluesy. Totally. That line about the clouds conspire over my head. That's good. That really provides a visual about how he's feeling about things, doesn't it? But, you know, Clouds is an interesting reference because I kind of feel like there's like a, a green haze around him all the time anyway. Sure. Because, you know, with the marijuana. Sure. But uh, he kind of, he really talks about being up there almost like he's he's getting lost up there in that air space, you know, just, just kind of hovering about and just kind of, kind of, you know, wispy and able to blow away and come he's, back together. He's definitely not on the same mystical, metaphysical plane as the rest of us. Yeah. I love the this last little line here. Wonder Years, Wonder Years was what that song is from. Oh and yeah, it, and this has like a Wonder Years feeling to yeah, it, right? I see, I see what you're saying. Yeah, good catch. 
I'm going to hate myself for not being able to think of it. Joe Cocker. Uh, hey, you got it before I did. Well done. Undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> that, that while you pull your hair out, I buy more drinks at the bar. I just, that is just like such a, I don't know why I just love that line. Little piano just playing away in the background. Yeah, just kind of tinkling away. Yeah. But I really dig the jam band feel. You know, the, the, the Grateful Dead, the widespread panic, the uh, uh, music festival where everybody's getting high. I mean, I just, this I just really does. That, it really man. does have that feel. Um, yeah. This is a great track. She gave good sunflower. What does that mean? It's, uh, I don't know. But you know what? It also kind of has that Joe Cocker feel to it. It does. This is a Southern Jam song, man. Very much so. We're going to just walk in bass right here and listen to this. Yeah. And you get, yeah, Chris and Rich are kind of doing a similar riff in each year. You know, they're kind of duplicating each other a little bit. Listen to that bass, man. Just driving it forward. Yeah. Hey, there's that tall reference. I felt taller. I heard the dealer's song. Hot again. This Hammond organ right here is. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. God, those drums are good, man. And that bass slide? Yeah. Yo, sunflower I need. Okay, so yeah, this has got to be sexual, right? She gave good sunflower. I beg and I plead. I need your sunflower. <laughs> gotta I was be wrong. Right. Now I see. Come on, baby. Just do me. I mean, that's the line. <laughs> Yeah, he says that. Dude. Say if you please. <laughs> well, listen, you got to respect her, right? That's right. That's right. If you please. <laughs> I could use some of that sunflower. Please. This made me reminiscing about the honey we made. Yeah, this is. Yep. He's, he's singing about a chick he had sex with on the road somewhere, and that, obviously. Da, 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 yeah, so I mean, there's like a callback directly to themselves to their own once stuff. again, yeah. yeah. But again, this, this would stand alone on its own. Oh, it's not quick. And, and we're nerding it out, right? Totally. Yeah. Come be the sun bursting through my clouds. It's hard enough just living on the ground. <laughs> this is a short song. It is. Well, the lyrics are short. We still got some, yeah, some jamming going. Yeah. Man, that organ is just like all over the place. And here we go, we're having some fun. This is your favorite shit right here. Can you picture the baseball being tossed about in the crowd? 
<laughs> at, the, at the festival. He's yeah. up there just Ford's just up there killing it while everybody's yeah. rocking behind him. There's one girl in a bikini that's on someone's shoulders, and everyone's yelling, "Take it off!" And the, then she's the, 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 the haze of marijuana floats through the air. <laughs> I, I've said this before, maybe not today, but Mark Ford is sick. Like, I, I just find his guitar playing to be fantastic. Yeah. Just the right notes without being flashy. That piccolo snare, it, it's, it's so high, man, and just like, it, it, it has such a cool back. It, it cuts it. through. Yeah, it really gets through it. Yeah. Oh. We still have some song to go here. I love that guitar tone. Mark Ford playing a lot of different guitar parts right now. I love this way he goes, really, really do. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. A little slow build here. This yeah. is great. Do that snare. Are you bobbing your head at home? Because we're bobbing our head here in the studio. He just dragged me wherever he wants to go with that guitar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, and they take this on with this particular chord structure just long enough. Like they could have gone another bar and I wouldn't have gotten tired of it. Yeah. Maybe four. <laughs> and there's the change, yeah. Well, Geezer Butler sounding guitar. I'm a, I'm a Geezer you. Butler sounding bass. I would just like to uh, state for the record that we finished six songs, no fade out yet. Not one fade out. That's right. All right, this is P25 or page 25 London. Yeah, my least favorite song. This is the song I was talking about. Yeah. So... It's a cool groove and like the instrumentation, everything's cool. But I, I guess I mean again with that '70s low ride, uh, kind of that. Yeah. Oh, it almost sounds like the Sanford and Son, like Quincy Jones at his worst. This was on the taller sessions as well. Yeah. So when he gets to the chorus, I mentioned this before. He sings on top of the guitar. Uh, which is the exact same bullshit that Ozzy Osbourne used to do. Yeah, and it's not something, that, and it's not something he does. And I, and I think that's probably why you're no, you notice it and it bugs you so much because he doesn't do it. Yeah, all. he doesn't yeah, do it. It's yeah. not his thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you think about Ozzy Osbourne, you go, Ozzy lost his mind. Na 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 na. But he's just yeah. singing exactly what the guitar is doing yeah. because he, he's not. And this is. Hey. It's uh uninspired compared to the rest of the tracks. How's yeah. that? Right. Is it a bad song? No. If it was on a different album, would we have the same opinion? No. But with this group of songs... I'm, I'm being nitpicky. Yeah, yeah, it just doesn't do anything for me because yeah. of what it's with. And then, yeah. and then with that lo-fi mic, and you kind of like... Having said that, I think 
I think the guitar plays great. I think the bass and drums have a really cool groove going on. There's a lot of interesting things happening. It's just yeah. it's not the best song on the album. Harmonica back there. Kind of that uh, that pig pen, uh, McKeon, whatever his name was from right. Grateful Dead. Yeah, 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 yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> the guitar playing is fantastic. I... You know what? If it's not the song, it's the chorus. No, I, I totally get you. I get you. It's not the heat, it's the humidity. That's right. You know? right. It's a dry heat. But I, you can't have. I mean, I'm still miserable. You know? <laughs> Sweating one way or the other, <laughs> yeah. you know? Burning up right here. I, I, I want to tell him you're better than this. Yeah. You are so much better than this. Because that's actually a pretty cool guitar riff, and everything else that's going on is neat. I just. Yeah. Whatever. I'll get over it. Hey, I mean. See, there's that lo fi mic. He sold 7 million albums. What the fuck do I know? Yeah, but he only sold 500,000 of this one. <laughs> <laughs> maybe if P25 London had been better, then maybe you guys would have sold it. Oh, yeah. Maybe if you hadn't had the pubic hairs on the cover. <laughs> and you ditched P25 London. Once again, the instrumentation here is fantastic. Yeah. Awesome playing. The drums are quite good on the chorus, I will say that. Get kind of a funky little thing going. Got a little cowbell there, too. Yeah, a little cowbell. I think I, that's where it's cool. Yeah, know? this is nice. The, the call and response thing. Thank you. <laughs> Good night, London. And now we get into the best song in this whole album. Uh, well, maybe. Uh, the, the next two songs are the best two albums. My best two songs. This is Ballad and Urgency. So I really like this song. This is a good song. Very good song. My favorite part of this song is the end of this song. Just it, because I like how it leads into, into the next wiser song. Time, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, because it, I don't... I'll, the, I'll agree with you. I'm, I stand corrected. You're absolutely right. The, and that's the problem with the next song as a single. Because if you listen to it on the album and you miss that whole intro thing coming in, it, it really takes away a lot of it, in my opinion. This, on its own, stands as a great song. This is very good. I had loving, touching, squeezing on this. Ah, really? Yeah. yeah, okay. All by myself. Ah, okay, I could, maybe I can see that. Sure. Again, with that haze that he's yeah. in, you know, yeah. where he's just kind of fading apart and coming back together. And yeah. Just the kind of the laid back, kind of splintered way they're playing everything. It does have that, like, real hazy feel to it. He says, a black cat has crossed my path. Tell me what's good luck about that. Right. There's almost like a sitar-like sitar? effect yeah. on there, yeah. Which normally would bug me, but I actually really like it on this. Yeah. 
once again, very lush amount of sound going on here. His ability to compose melody and make melody so beautiful. Oh, yeah. Um, against the backdrop of the rest of the world, you know? Yeah. Those drums are tuned well. They are. Yeah. Tuned well drums. People don't realize you get a tune of drums. Yeah. You can't just like throw heads upon a drum. You got to tune it. Well, I mean, I, I guess you could. <laughs> you have to. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, they don't sound right. I mean, he's got these tuned really, really well. You don't have to tune your guitar strings either. You'll just sound like shit. <laughs> I like Johnny Colt's bass on this again. The way he just doesn't play a lot of notes. About an air under this. Yeah. You know, we talk about David Gilmore having air under his guitar. Right. There's Same a lot idea. Of air under here. Sitar and yeah, I wonder if that's actually a sitar or just part of the keyboards. I think it's on the it's a guitar effect. Gotcha. They're not doing quarter notes like you normally hear with the sitar. Yeah, he's playing the note he would play anyway. You know, not really overly cerebral, but his phrasing on his on his lyrics. Well, yeah, and I think we, we talked about that in an earlier song. Um, the way that, like, everybody else would, if you had a, you know, six words in a line, right? You'd sing the six words in a line, and then you would move on to the next line. And he has a way to, like, take some words and just kind of, like, sing them along, and then, like, come back and squeeze some other words. It, it's poetry, just, like, the way he fits it in is unique. And it's especially noticeable when you're doing like what we're doing, which is looking at the lyrics while you're listening to it, and you can see the line, 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 the very linear layout, and then the way he actually phrases it. It's a, it's a lot of fun. An anthem like you've never heard. Have you ever heard, heard something, something so sounds so absurd? That dirt, 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 dirt. You know, that's, yeah. that, that's that Biggie Smalls technique. Yeah, that's good. yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Really, really good. He is a very talented rhymer. Yeah. His phrasing is very good. And his hooks are very good. I mean, he's kind of... The, t- and here we go. The next two minutes here is just fantastic. I'm just going to shut up and listen. This is fantastic. say that <laughs> but I'll put up with the birds for this, this right here so if you haven't listened to this album before this is still the same track they haven't switched tracks yet they're about two and nine eight seven six we're getting down there to it and we're going to get into wiser time. I'll shut up. There we go. And that's the track. This. This steel guitar right there. It, oh, that's so beautiful. Guest steel guitar player. I forget the guy's name, but he's fantastic. 
this like that whole construct of these two songs is a throwback in and of itself to album rock days. I know we've talked about that before. When you put the album on, you have to listen to the whole thing from front to back. And the idea that people would put songs that just ran together, which is kind of a, was a lost art even in the 90s, really. So Listen to Chris and Rich harmonize here. Yes. One of the few songs they harmonize on. Southern Rock. Oh, this is... Very Almond Brothers and this Marshall is, Tucker. This is the Southern Rock anthem on this album, without question. And I noted that they have a resonator at the end that they do some slide across. They're doing a slide on a resonator, which is... <laughs> and to just kind of randomly throw that in is kind of rough. Chris Whitley did a whole album which is nothing Just with that? Gotcha. So this is totally a road trip song. Yeah. This is a road trip song. Yeah. So much Jerry Garcia to this, like thickness and richness. Yeah, but you know, I, and you and I talked offline before, and that right there is very, very much kind of that signature Black Crow sound right there. That the, the beat, the syncopation, the way that he's singing. Yeah. But you and I were talking about how you can almost hear Band of Horses, the inspiration that Ben Bridwell took from Chris Robinson. And they even kind right of here. look alike. Yeah, right here. Especially right here. So the the drums on this are fantastic. Yeah. Put a little cowbell He's in there. He's shuffling a little cowbell. And Mark Ford's guitar playing is great. Just running it. 14 seconds to sunrise. I'm tired, but I'm wiser for the time. You get the vision of... Uh, guy on a tour bus he's just sick and tired of the tour bus yeah just on the tour bus and this is the day man just rolling there's a line in the second verse that earlier when he said uh, you asked me why another road song it's funny I bet you never left home <laughs> you know I'm on, I've been on the road I've been all over the world for the last five years man yeah. you know this is a different it's a different experience The poetry on that chorus is really great. Yeah. There it is. Listen. Oh, nice. We're going to get like three solos here. That Chris Whitley album that he put out around 94, I think it came out the same year. I mean, it, that's the sound that he was doing on that resonator. And these guys just kind of took it and just... Kind of Chris Whitley did an entire album. Just with that? But this right here is just so perfect. The way it's just, it was just an atom. And now we get a organ solo? That's cool. And those drums back there with that splashy hi-hat. And, and, and he just, he's so rock solid on the drums. Bop, bam. Bop, 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 bop. I've said this before. I'll say it again. The foundation of any great band is a great drummer. I like the way you talk. I mean, you could not possibly string together this, you know, it's a six-piece band with a guest percussionist. Multiple solos, instrumentation, everything going on without a rock-solid drummer holding it all together. And I love the way he says, on a good day, we can part the sea. 
on a bad day, glory is beyond our reach. But on both of those, he says, I know this isn't every day. You can't have a good day and a bad day. Yeah, exactly. You know, I know, I know if it's great. a bad day, we can get through it. We can part the sea, yeah. we can get through it. And if it's a good day, the glory is still out, we can get it. It's going to be okay. But even on a bad day, it just seems like, like we'll, we'll never get there. You know, But these guys had already gotten there. That's what's so right. crazy. But, but once again, it's a road song. He's on the road. There's ups and downs, right? Yeah. You know, the guy's got to get sick of being on a tour bus 12 hours a day, right? No matter how many drugs and girls and everything else. And at some point, it's got to get old. That level of being lost and desperate. Yeah. You know, the voice like that, he has at his reach so many notes that he can play around with, you know? And it's different than like Mariah Carey singing some stupid pop song and then suddenly going supersonic. Right. You know, like jumping eight octaves just for the hell of it. Yeah. yeah. He can he can scream in like the perfect key, you know? Yeah, he can. He really can. Such a powerful voice. I mean he's got that southern soul singer thing going on, he really does. That's the best song in this album. I, I, without question. Time, yeah. I think that's their best song ever. I mean, I think that's the pinnacle of the Black Crows right there. That thing is fantastic. Wow. So this I, I, is, That's high praise. This is uh, track number 10. This is Downtown Money Waster, which is uh, very much an old kind of, dare I say, Delta Blues acoustic throwback kind of totally. thing. And Rolling Stones had, song, Rolling Stones had a song called You Gotta Move Off Sticky Fingers. That sounds almost exactly like this Very song. similar. Gotcha. Yeah. You got to move, but it's that. This is old school, yeah. yeah. This is the most derivative is the word I want to use, but that sounds insulting, and I don't mean it that way at all. But this is the thing that sounds the most like something else on this album. I think. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree. What really saves the song is Chris's singing. Yeah, it ain't the tambourine. <laughs> That's for damn sure. <laughs> a tambourine can wear me out. That's a pretty cool line, actually. Very catchy. Man, there's some Grand Parsons here. If you guys don't know who Grand Parsons is, I beg you to go research Grand Parsons. There is. There is a whole lot of just everything from that region, like, kind of crammed into this. Yeah. They call back the 70s so much. They do. Well, in the South and South in the 70s, kind of all of it together. Lots of cocaine references here. Yeah. And you don't go to heaven. <laughs> That's a good line. Sounds like his grandmother said that to him, right? Well, he goes, little girl likes to drink and sniff powders. Like the bars that stay open after hours. Like the boys that go 24-7. You too many late nights, you don't go to heaven? Yeah. I like the fact that he rhymed heaven with 24-7. <laughs> well, earlier he said, you got a 38 in your book of Revelations. Which is, it's Revelation, by the way, not Revelations. 
Uh, you got a 38 in your book of Revelations. I got a 44 and a lead or a lead of temptation. A lead of temptation, yeah. yeah. You kind of get the sense that they're just having fun with this one. Yeah. Just like sitting around the studio. They probably smoked a joint. Well, this is the second last song yeah. on, the, on the album, so maybe it's a little filler. Well, and also this is uh, this is kind of a this is kind of a fun, upbeat, just kind of dicking around jam kind of thing. And the end of the album is very like kind of dark and serious. So sure, maybe they were trying to have a little little fun before the end. You know, I can see that. These guys very much were a concert band. Even though they had such great albums, they were a concert band. They, they definitely embraced the jam band thing and long live shows. Yeah. I, I wonder if maybe this was like a um, a little bit of like showing deference to their own. Because this is kind of like a, uh, I don't know, this kind of has an encore-ish feel to it. Yeah. Maybe they're paying homage to themselves here. Like the drummer's still in the bathroom, and so they're just yeah. going to go ahead and play the song. Yeah. Okay. This is a great song. <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> So this is the final track on this album. This is Descending, and this was also on the Taller Sessions. And I love this song so much. This is such a sad song to me. It's beautiful, though. Yeah. It really is. Almost a church organ, piano thing, the way he builds this here. Yeah. You get the sense that you're about to sing a hymn, you know? Good call, because the... The verse goes, no sermons on ascending. No verdict on deceit. Wow, that level of just... So much sound that all plays together. And they're all... So, two guitars... Like, Rich's guitar, kind of doing that broken arm chord thing. The bass and then Mark on the slide, they're just like all following the same thing, right? Yeah. He's crying out for help, right? He is, absolutely. Memorandum is not a word that shows up in a lot of rock and roll. <laughs> it really doesn't. And I don't know that Chris Robinson is like high educated. You know, he just he just kind of cerebral on a lot. Uh, yeah, of he, stuff. he's cerebral. Yeah, his prose. He's obviously well read. He knows the English language. Yeah. Right? yeah. So the chorus is curses, curses and clues, a feast, a feast for fools. I wonder what he's descending into. Like, what is he asking for help from? Is this the addiction that he was going through? Is it just a lifestyle? Is it maybe a, a place he was in his life where he was fighting with his brother and kind of felt like everything was adversarial? I, could have been all of those. Yeah. I, I would say that it could just be him writing a song, but I, I don't think that's how he writes. I mean, this is not oh, yes. some of the people we've listened to before where they put themselves in a place and write a song. I think he writes personally, I think you're right. whatever it is. Yeah. And, and especially because of, of where they had come and where they are currently, I think there's quite a bit of this. I think you're probably right. 
I think there's quite a bit of. I, I love this right here with the guitar on his lyrics. This right here is crazy. <laughs> that was going wild. Yeah. I'd let it slide like mercury. It's silver and a quick, and it's poison and so deadly. That's mercury. is such a great song to end an album like this with it's you know we started off and i said that, that we opened with gone that was the best thing they could possibly open with because yeah. it started out was rocking it was funky it was heavy it built yeah and you knew what you were going to get into and so we kind of we start with this opener and then they they leave us it's almost like a concert right like yeah. they, they walk away and it's like okay here we go we're done there's a big emotional finish it was kind of soft compared to everything else we've been doing and gonna, here we go. Going to play y'all some songs, and yeah. then we're done. And there you go. Thanks. Yeah. This is kind of an interesting ending. stage like the lights go down he's playing piano this is Eddie Hirsch yeah. Harsh Hirsch I just like that Steinway sound you know, just don't, don't, don't do anything crazy good, good, good catch that's exactly what that is is like that big grand piano yeah. right We love you. We love you. <laughs> I don't know why we made him British, but on the behind the music from back in 2000, 2002 or whatever, I remember vividly they were talking about being on this tour and how every night they weren't sure if Eddie was going to get the piano intro to this ride or not. <laughs> Evidently, he notoriously like fucked it up on stage over and over and over again. So the band all just kind of sat back there and waited to see what would happen. A beautiful song. And a perfect ending to the album, and it really is. Yeah. You know, the... Uh... On, on a piano, when you like start at the top and work your way all the way down, just, I think it's called a glissando or a glissando. glissando. Yeah, yeah. It kind of did the exact opposite there. We're like, kind of in octaves. Yeah. Um, good night. Good night. Thank you. Um, and man, that's a little bit. Thanks of a for co- thanks for coming out. Yeah, and how much of a good night to our career was that? Because again, this was this was the best thing that I ever did. There was, you know, they, was they came out. They came out two years later and released uh, Blackberry. Was it Blackberry? I don't remember. I, well, there was a, I don't even remember. Well, there was a song called Blackberry off the album. I, I think anyway. Um, you know, they had that, which I don't think they may have had a, one signal. I'm not sure. And I don't remember what they did next. I remember in the early aughts they had an album called Lions. Okay. Which I bought just because I wanted to see what they sounded like, but it was missing. Everybody, I mean, I was like Chris and Rich, and I think Steve, and they had some guy play bass on it that I'd never, and it sounds like nothing they'd ever done before, kind mm. of thing. You know? Well, so last year they planned on doing 
Yeah, they were going to come back this year. Yeah, well, and it was going to be the 20 year. But, please tell me it's not 30. It's 30. It's the 30 Shit. year. But it was the 30 year, but it was only going to be, it was Chris and Rich. They didn't invite any of the rest of the band. No, back. They did not. Yeah, yeah. That's where I was going with And that's that. why I was not going to buy tickets to that because that's bullshit. But they have a brand new album, a brand new band. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Same old album, brand new brand band. Brand new band, yeah. Different guys. And, uh, you know, again, in their hubris, they were like, listen, the Black Crows or Chris and Rich Robinson. Right, right, right. You know, we are the Black Meanwhile, they hadn't talked to each other in 20 years. Right. So, <laughs> you know what? Okay. So there, there's a, there's a, you could make the point. That those two guys wrote the songs for thirty years. Right, they wrote the hits, they wrote the platinum selling albums. Okay, that's fair enough. But you know what made you guys sound fucking great <laughs> was the Steves and the Marks and the Eddie and the Johnnies and the guys that you played with. I mean, the those, ones that put up with your shit. Yeah, the ones that put up with your shit for all these albums and for all these world tool, tours while you guys were being complete fucking douchebags to each other. <laughs> And, and like sat there and took it and came out and played night after night like professionals and went back into the studio and recorded like professionals while you guys were doing your nonsense. And then for you to come out and go, we're going on world tour, but we're not calling anybody from the band. Yeah, they're not Black Crows. We're Black Crows. We're but Black Crows. I, but, you know, you go back to when they first started, I guess they were. Well, and like I said, I, I understand the point, but I still think it's a complete asshole move. Sure. And I wasn't buying tickets. Yeah. You know, somebody's like, are you, you going to go? You're a big fan. I was like, no, no. Not unless they're going to call the original lineup back. Well, COVID got them. So yeah, the, I guess yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah, that they're not touring right now anyway. So <laughs> the perspective I have on this is, uh, I, I, again, if you're listening to it so much, just uh, within our process of of, uh, of listening and, and breaking down this album, I have such a different appreciation for this album now. And I hope that I hope that everyone listening here gets a chance to go listen to this album on a different level than you've listened to it before. Maybe you never listened to it before. Maybe you just know it because of the pubes. You know? Yeah, and go listen to it without us talking over it because. I mean, well, I appreciate the fact you listen to us talking over it, but listen to it just in silence because it's really good. And I will say this. Normally, you know, we listen to an album for three, four weeks before we you know, come in here and do this. And normally I'm done. Even if if I pick the album, you pick the album, it doesn't matter. I'm done. Right. right. Like I don't need to listen to this for a little while because I've just been so immersed in this thing for a while. Uh, this is playing on my iPhone. I know when I get back in my truck, it's going to come on. I don't feel the need to turn it off. I just listened to it and talked about it for two hours, and I'll still listen to it on the way home. Yeah. I, it's it's that good of an album. I, I'll totally, from time to time, I may get to the place where I need to hear Wiser Time again. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to listen to it and go, you know what? I need to back this up and listen to Ballad and Urgency because I need those two songs together. Yeah. It's you not know? the same without it. Yeah. And t- sometimes two things just go together. You know, you can't really explain it, but those it two just, things. It is what just, it is, yeah. Yeah, and they're really different styles, but they really go together. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We hope you have a different perspective on uh, on this album, uh, just like I have, or uh, maybe you've appreciated the whole time, like Jason has. But either way, uh, this has been the Black Crow's 1994 album, Amorica, which is one of our favorite albums. Thanks for hanging with us. Mm-hmm.